Welcome to Dead House. I am Dylan. And I am Nathan. And I am in pain. (laughs) (laughs) Which part? Is it your neck or your feet? Was my neck for a bit there after a concert. Uh, Now it is behind my knees and the tops of my feet because I've severely sunburned from yesterday. Yeah, we've, uh, well, not officially entered uh, Australian summer, but we may Mm. as fucking well have with how hot and sunny it's been. Spring here is pretty much summer. Yeah, but we're finally taking advantage of my four-wheel drive and... We went to the beach, drove on it. Yeah. First proper beach day in probably like six months. We're overdue. I'd say more than six months. Like, you reckon? Okay. Yeah. Well, six months ago was practically winter. Yeah, that's true. But it was good though. Yes, it was very good. Uh, I, miraculously, did not get sunburnt at all. Yeah, but... Despite my English white skin. <laughs> I think that's why the tops of my feet are so burnt because they were pasty white. But <laughs> you were donning the wide brim... Straw hat and the long sleeve, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. smart move on your part. Oh, yes. But, uh, yeah, it was good. Went up to Bribey Island with some friends and threw some balls around. Built a sand castle. Went about knee-deep in the water and back out again. <laughs> we did. We built, like, little sand tunnels, like, back in primary school. Had a little <laughs> moat, little volcano. It was sick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the reason my neck was sore is because we went to a concert on a Thursday. Yeah. Not too big on Thursday concerts, but that's why we requested the Friday off because we're old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we saw Thornhill, Melbourne band, big fan, and uh, your first time seeing Thornhill. What did you think? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think they were very good. I am a weird man, and I think most of the time I like just listening to music at its purest, not purest form, but at its most refined form mm. instead of live because when it's live, it's just it's not as good, is it? <laughs> well, I sometimes I, like, I, I prefer I like it the, live. I like the energy and I like the performance, mm. but in terms of like, you know, it doesn't sound as good. Yeah. <laughs> but he's I not mean, meant to. Yeah, you've got a point. I mean, I can see the side when people say that because it's like, you know, they've had numerous takes to get it perfect yeah. when it's recorded and then it gets mixed and mastered so it sounds pristine. But I also don't like paying like $13 for a can of drink. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. $50 for a shirt is fine, but $15 for a 330ml can. $50 for a shirt is not fine. <laughs> yeah, but you felt the quality of this. <laughs> yeah, okay. But it's still not fine. But no, usually I like a, a $40, I would say. I, I like to cap it out unless it's a big band or it's a jumper or some shit. I like to buy op shop clothes, so they're like $4 a shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, Actually, I think the one I'm wearing right now was an op shop. Ah, uh, yes. The, the tea towel. The tea towel pattern. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, No, it was sick. Holding Absence, Thousand Below and Bloom. And uh, I went to the theatre last night. I was living beyond my means and uh, I was experiencing the upper class. And theatre as in performance, not... Mu- well, they're both forms. Mm. As in like play, not musical? Yeah, yeah. It was like a, a live production of Frankenstein by the production company Shake and Stirf, which uh, came to our school a few times when we were younger with like contemporary... Shakespeare yep. renditions, which was always kind of cool. And uh, it was fantastic. I would uh, oh, 10 good. out of 10 do again. It was um, very immersive. They had like these kind of digital screens on rigs. They would like pull up and down. And instead of having just like a backdrop, it'd be like projected like projection, uh, or okay. like CGI kind of sets, which was cool. A play of the 21st century. Yeah. I think that's yeah. just called a movie. But, Pyrotechnics you know. as well. Well, damn. Yeah, See, I've, I've always been under the assumption that I would not enjoy a play. Like, mm. I've seen one musical live when yeah. we saw Phantom of the Opera, and I'm going to be seeing Beauty of the Beast next month. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine sitting there and just watching people, like, act and perform and talk. That doesn't yeah. sound as engaging. Well, that's kind of what I found more engaging than a movie in this regard, was because you're seeing these people act 
in the same kind of way they would on screen, but you're seeing it happen before you. And as I was watching it, in my mind, I was kind of like, if I was directing this film, what angle would I capture this particular action sequence? And what lighting would I use for that person's face? Like, it was really cool to kind of like imagine all that while they're sort of acting in front of me. Very nice. But, very um, fair. Yeah. And the dude that was playing the monster was like nearly seven foot and had like really gnarly makeup with the stitches and head splitting open and blood and whatnot. So Did he have the bolts in his neck? Because I feel like that's a Frank no, staple. No, no. <laughs> I think that was like a fucking Universal Studios touch, <laughs> that one. Uh, but yeah, anyway, let's, uh, let's get into our episode. Today's a, an interesting one because it's, uh, it's a kind of a curveball uh, yeah. for a horror pod. Furthest we've gone from horror, it's, it's pretty much a thriller. Yeah, this is probably, probably the closest to thriller we'll get on this pod, unless we do something like Silence of the Lambs. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe, yeah. It has yeah. horror aspects in the sense of the, the gore and the motives, but oh, it's, sure, um, yeah. it's but very it, much a slow burn, like detective crime thriller. Yeah, I, I, think, I've, I think I've, in my mind, made that distinction before where a thriller, to me, is like some sort of, the movie has some sort of aspect of like a chase or like a, like a cat and mouse. Yeah. Like usually it's a detective or police like or something like that. Like a whodunit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so obviously it's movie seven, by the way. You yeah. Know, we didn't seven, say that. 1995 and uh, directed by David Fincher. And before this pod, I was like, man, David Fincher is such a prolific director, but I could not for the life of me remember what he's done. I just knew he did a lot of like cult classics. Yeah. I'm pretty bad with directors, but did he do Fight Club? He did. Did yes. he do Alien 3? He did. Okay. Yes. I'm good then. You're on it. Those are the only two that I remember. Yeah. Fight Club's probably his uh, claim to fame. Mm. But um, Alien 3, I think, was his feature, like, directorial debut before this. Oh, my. Which, oh, what, a, what a good debut. Unusual kind of foray into, into filmmaking. Um, but he also did Zodiac and Gone Girl. So, these kind of crime detective thrillers seem to be his thing. Hmm. I guess that's probably um, what, after what Alien. drew him to this fucking story to begin with, right? Because he didn't write yeah. it. No. Written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who is the man responsible for Sleepy Hollow, which I'm a big fan <laughs> of, as listeners of the pod will know, and uh, the 2010 Wolfman, which is I pretty did, cool. I didn't even know there was a 2010... Oh, Wolfman. That yeah, it's have, one with Anthony Hopkins. It does have Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, Hugo Weaving. But yeah, so he's, he's kind of always had a thumb of the pulse of the macabre, mm-hmm. and... Sure. Uh, a film starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. This is such a curveball and like a tonal shift for their careers. Uh, yeah. I mean, specifically Morgan Freeman. Mm. Brad Pitt, I could guess I could see it because mm. 95, he's probably right in the peak of him being like the Hollywood heartthrob. Yeah. He's like the sex symbol. Well, he was in Fight Club that Fincher did as well. So they would have mm. already had that relationship. Yeah. But uh, I think I read that when pitching the film to like test screening audiences, uh, he was like handing out flyers that said, do you want to see a new movie with Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt? <laughs> and that's how they like got people in. And Damn. then when they watched the sort of sick journey that Seven <laughs> is, they were like, what the fuck? I mean, no shirtless Brad Pitt in this one, I don't believe. Oh, no, sorry. You do see him like shaving his chest. Yeah. So very briefly. And I think... Uh, that was sort of purposely only minimal because they kind of wanted to veer away from that fight club. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. an interesting cast. Um, and I've read that they've went through a bunch of other big names before they settled on these people. Yeah, so Morgan Freeman, uh, you know, the man has played God, for Christ's sake. <laughs> like, he's a, he's a, an A-lister. And um, Kevin Spacey is John Doe, who, you know, 
Spacey's kind of gone off the deep end these days and a bit yeah. of a weirdo. But well, uh, well I don't know. I, I still don't know what his deal is. So mm. for anyone who's not aware, Kevin Spacey uh, fell out of the the limelight because he had like a lot of sexual assault. Yeah. Allegations against him. Yeah. But I read that he was acquitted, and so he's completely cl- like cleared of all charges. Okay. But he's now like tarred. Yeah, like his his kind of name has been smeared. Yeah. So I don't think he'll ever be like movies and stuff again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it's always weird going back and watching movies with these types of actors in it. Of like, mm. oh, this is interesting for the character of I mean John Doe, the Kevin yeah. Spacey's character. Yeah. But. In the back of your mind, you're, there's still the part saying like, okay, but are you watching a horrible person in real life? Yeah. Like when you go watch a movie that's like directed blob, directed by, I don't know, what's that scummy director's name? Who did Jeepers Creepers? I don't, uh, know. I don't think it was him, but I think you're referring to Roman Polanski. Also him. He's another guy. Yeah. I was thinking of a different one, but yeah. Okay. Like stuff like that. Or, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, oh, is it okay to enjoy the art of someone who's a horrible person? Yeah, well, I mean, even David Fincher seems to be quite an abrupt, intimidating guy. Well, <laughs> but even, he makes good movies. Even Danny Elfman's coming under some shit lately. Oh, really? So, I like his tattoos, at least. Have you seen his hair, though? He looks like Carrot Top. <laughs> and that's not a compliment a troll by doll. any means. Um, you know what's funny is Michael Stripe, the singer of R.E.M., was briefly considered for the role of John Doe. Interesting. Kind okay. of looks the same, like shaved head. and I, I don't know what his acting chops would be. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever been in anything if else. There's one, if there's one thing I can say about Kevin Spacey, he's a good actor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone in this is phenomenal. Like, there's not a mm. single weak link in the cast. Yeah, and it's a relatively minimal cast, really. Like, from... Like, four main characters. Yeah, you've got the two detectives, John Doe, and then Mill's wife, who I believe was played by Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got, like, sort of... Secondary-ish characters Like you got Ali Ermi As the, the police chief Oh yeah, so yeah. I, I forgot about that That's always interesting mm. um, Oh fucking I guess Dr. Cox Yeah Scrubs John C. McGinley SWAT, SWAT guy <laughs> Yeah John C. McGinley Is like the SWAT guy Who's he only He's only in a couple of scenes But like He's the focus mm. Of those small scenes And it's like Did this guy Do something To get into this yeah. Dave Fincher movie Just to get his name out there I don't know I'm used to that actor Being quite you know, a forceful and uh, sort of abrupt character, but this he was kind of like the aggressive, hostile guy, and it, I don't know, it caught me off guard the first oh, yeah. time I ever saw this. I mean, he's got my favorite quote in the movie. It's like right at the end when they're in the helicopter, mm. and he's like, "Somebody call somebody." <laughs> like, it doesn't really make much sense, but they right. are the guys that you call when she <laughs> hits the fan, yeah. and he's like, "I don't know what to do." <clears throat> this film had a budget of thirty-three million, quite significant. I mean, look yeah. at the cast. And uh, it went on to make three hundred twenty-seven point three million at the box office. Okay, quite substantial. Yeah. I mean, it is still considered a cult classic, probably because of the dark themes, but um, quite a movie. I remembered seeing this at least once before watching it again for this pod, and I remember it was good. Um, and I think how dark the viewing experience was tainted my opinion of it. I remember watching it. Like, on DVD when I was younger and thinking it was dark and grainy and that kind of detracted from the experience for me. But watching it again this week, I loved it. This is a great movie. Oh, and yeah, I, I mean, I if anyone doesn't like this movie, it's probably just because they're squeamish or yeah. something like that. But, like, the technique of the movie is great. The mm. story is engaging. Yeah. The acting is phenomenal. It's all good. And in yeah. terms of being dark and grainy, what me and Alex watched it the other week, we went to 
what's that cinema called? Like the New Farm Cinema? Yeah, yeah. yeah? And we watched it and in it was on like 35 millimeter film. Yeah. So that was dark and grainy. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to see a movie pretty much as people would have seen it back in the day. Yeah, just, for like, sure. You see the impurities in like the film as it goes by. Mm. Luckily, we didn't have any issues of like the film running out or breaking <laughs> or anything like that. Well, I remember that was a lot of people's gripes with this film when they first saw it. And apparently that was intended because they used a chemical process called bleach bypass. Okay. Where the silver was left in the film's stock. So it deepens a lot of the darker images in the role. Right. And so it is like visually dark and like hard to see. And at times I read they actually had to reshoot some scenes because you couldn't <laughs> see dark. Morgan Freeman's face in shadow. Okay, interesting. Um, but yeah, it was it was obviously intended to be that way. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, a... it definitely works. Like, it, it mm. would be weird to have all this stuff going on. Like, the whole extended scene where they're first in, like, the first, like, gluttony killing house mm. where it's all dark. It'd be odd to watch that if everything was bright and sunny and you could mm. see every detail. Well, even, like, the weather, it's always raining in this movie. And... Yep. It was shot in downtown Los Angeles where you associate with palm trees and sunshine, but uh, it kind of worked to the credit because I think um, Brad Pitt only had like 45 days or so to shoot this before he did 12 Monkeys with Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. And uh, so they decided to shoot it in the bad weather because they didn't have a choice. They were limited by time with who they had. Mm. Um, And in hindsight, that kind of worked to the film's credit because having this kind of drab setting made you feel kind of trapped even outside. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, uh, it, it just it's kind of like uh, a personification of the city itself because mm. Somerset's whole ideal is that the the city is just corrupt, everyone's awful, and mm. everything has gone to shit. And, like, that's evidenced by the weather always literally pouring on everyone and everyone's yeah. always getting wet. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the scenes take place either indoors or in a car. Mm. <laughs> or when it, it is outside, they're fucking drenched. Yeah, although it is odd how... The final scene takes place with the like whole climax of the film, mm. but that's sunny, bright and sunny. Yeah, it's like a stark contrast. But I imagine like that's just purely a production thing because they've got these like huge wide tracking shots of outside. They've got a helicopter mm. flying around. They couldn't film it when it was raining, and they couldn't add in fake rain. So they're just like, it's fine. Just it's just sunny. It's good. Yeah. Down. I guess having it set in like a desert highway as well. Like I don't know how much rain it would get naturally. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, in terms of, like, setting, I don't think it's specified in the movie where this is set, so it's mm. kind of ambiguous, which is good, because it gives it that sense of, like, this could be any city, really. Yeah, they never name it, but I read that it was inspired by the writer's move to New York and just how depressed he was with mm. all the crime and the rain and the people, and you definitely get that vibe that it's presumably New York because you've got, like, the apartments and the subway and the cabs, the crime... <laughs> Like, That's just describing every American city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, a bit of background on this. Uh, Brad Pitt insisted on doing his own stunts. And when you see him with a cast on his left forearm in the film, that actually had to get written into the script because in the chase scene, he slipped on a wet car bonnet and went through the windshield of a car and cut up his hand pretty bad. I mean, so, that's gnarly. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So that's why, because it was shot out of sequence... Um, scenes in the film with him before he's got the cast in the chase scene, he's just got his hand in his pocket. Oh, yeah. Because he's got like <laughs> stitches and shit. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, a hella believable performance from the like deranged survivor of the lust kill. 
uh, when he's like in the cop shop telling him what happened and he's shaking and hyperventilating and yep. freaking out. Uh, apparently, to get to that state, the actor stayed awake for, for two nights. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they were like scheduled to shoot that scene on a particular night. And he's like, no, 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 push it back and I'll stay up. So I'm more kind of like wired. Just <laughs> completely wired, completely drained. Yeah. Hyperventilating. So that was that was cool kind of character acting in a way. Hell yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that's... That just goes to show, like, similar to the John C. McGinley thing I said before, like, even the small characters in this mm. are great performers. Memorable. Yeah, like, they, they stick with you. Yeah. And this is one of those films, because they're such distinct kills as well, even when they're cameos or secondary characters, you remember them. Oh, yes. Which is uh, definitely the beauty of this film. Um, the sloth victim, a lot of people's uh, one that makes him kind of squeamish the most. Sure. Uh, took 14 hours to get the makeup ready. And no one knew that that actor was going to move <laughs> in that scene because that's oh, like yeah. one of the biggest twists in that thing is like you walk in this mm. horrendous setting, uh, this person's been mutilated. And, and he looks dead. Yeah, yeah. And then someone leans over the bed and he just fucking leans forward and gasps. Like the director didn't tell anyone except for him that was going to happen. Mm. So everyone's shocked reaction is legit, <laughs> which we love yep. when we see that in movies. Funny thing, they had an actual <laughs> cockroach wrangler for the gluttony scene. <laughs> what? That makes sense. They'd have to. Because uh, yeah. Peter would be on their asses if they didn't. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they just had like a bucket of cockroaches. And when the actor that played the deceased, morbidly obese man was like bound and in position, they just like tipped it over him. <laughs> and they had to put things in his ears and nose. So they wouldn't crawl up yep. any orifice. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... Uh... I thought that was just... With cockroaches, I that's not so bad. If, if that was spiders, then that's fucked. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Huntsman crawling all over you and you oh. can't move. Disgusting. Nah, to nah, think that people that. eat them like tarantulas overseas. But yeah, they're Yuck. fucked. I don't know what to tell you. They're yeah. fucked. Yeah. You or just fucked. You sprayed the house just today. I did. Eradicate those fuckers downstairs. <laughs> well, when I, get, when I came home yesterday from the beach, I was putting stuff back under the house and out of the corner of my eye, I saw crawling behind the sink Ooh. a fucking huntsman. And it was probably like, I'll do a hand signal. It was probably like that big. Oh my, so we're like, talking like tennis ball sized. Maybe, maybe a little Jesus. bit small, I'm not sure. Okay. I, only, I only briefly saw it, but yeah, I sprayed the shit out of the entire house today. Gnarly. Um, and I got like a noir vibe from this film. Like the some of the angles and the shots and you've got like the the dark drab settings with the rain all the time the trench coats and fedoras of the detectives and john doe do you think at any point they considered filming it in black and white well i read that fincher described the process as wanting to make a black and white film in color so okay, that's where well, we got a lot go. of the idea for the kind of shots and it definitely came sense. across that way yeah i like that the only bit that i think would have suffered from uh black and white mm. or i guess is is really good because they wanted to make that like black and white, but also with color mm. is when John Doe is like walking first into the cop shop and he's like covered in like this vivid red. Blood. Yeah. I think that yeah. looks very cool. And also they seem to use red as like clues to the killer throughout. Like oh, the door in his apartment that. is red. The light bulbs in his apartment are red. Well, I mean, that's presumably for the photos, like the photos, the dark room, the dark yeah. room. when he's in the cop car at the end, he's in red. Sure. Like yeah. I, that seemed to be just like a motif. Okay, I him. like that. Um, something that Shyamalan does a lot. And, it. Um, Quit it. <laughs> we don't care about Shyamalan. <laughs> but yeah, I guess on the on the point of like the noir looking shots, even like in that chase uh, when they're going through the alleys, 
like his silhouette in a puddle and then when he's like pressing the gun to his temple and you mm-hmm. just see this like silhouette of the the hat and the the coat just looked really sick and uh, gave me like almost sin city vibes if you've seen that uh not in its entirety mm. but yeah uh do you want to give the listeners a bit of a sort of succinct premise for this film if they've not seen or heard of it well sean um the movie is about a like two detectives in this awful city who are chasing a serial killer who is essentially killing his victims in the manner of the seven deadly sins. Mm. He so seems to use that as like motive for like cleansing a corrupt yeah. society. Yeah, so he uses he goes after specific people based on like the sin, say glutton, he goes after a morbidly obese man, mm. and then he also kills them in a manner that is representative of that sin. So he, yeah, with gluttony, he f- makes he like force feeds the man like spaghetti until his fucking stomach bursts. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, what a uh, way to go! And that is cool as shit, as mo- <laughs> as morbid and macabre as it is. Yeah, I think we've mentioned seven before on this pod in passing, but mm-hmm. it's um yeah, I mean we're naturally just fascinated by serial killers. But uh, just the the methods and the lengths that this guy goes to yeah. uh, to prove a point is... Um, I mean, holding a man captive for a whole year before yeah. he even starts anything else, that's yeah. commitment. And the deliberation of like taking a photo of him every day so you can slowly <laughs> see the decay over time yeah. and paying his rent on the same time <laughs> so no one suspects a thing. Yeah. Yeah, this He's man was determined. Methodical. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the detectives as well, I really like the contrast between... Somerset and Mills like you've got Morgan Freeman as Detective Somerset who's kind of this wise veteran detective like yep. he's seen it all done it all um, like literally he's a week out literally from about to retire yeah yeah ready to to hang his hat up um and a very like you said before methodical approach um almost like OCD tendencies in his mannerisms and then you've got Mills played by Brad Pitt who is kind of like this arrogant hotshot that gets assigned or he requests to be transferred right yeah um, it gets teamed up with this guy and there's a lot of tension between the two because they just have like different approaches to their work. Um, and you've got Detective Mills who definitely takes a more like forceful approach to everything, very abrupt and intimidating, whereas uh, I guess similar to John Doe, um, Somerset's more kind of patient and calculating. Yep. Which is uh, definitely funny. Like it's some like tongue-in-cheek dialogue in like their dynamic when they mm. interact throughout the film. And uh, the one that comes to mind is when it kind of breaks the ice, um, there's like that tense scene where they kind of like swap desks in the office and <laughs> like Mills gets Somerset's old space and he's like figuring it out, asking if he has to answer the phone or that kind of thing. And it was like his wife calling to like invite <laughs> Somerset to dinner without telling Mills. Yep. Um, and then I love at the dinner table when the subway goes by and it's like there's an earthquake and they're like, yeah, we wonder why the, the realtor only let us in for like five minutes at a time and now we fucking know why. And he just like bursts out laughing like he can't <laughs> contain himself. That is such a perfect scene. Yeah. Which could like be perceived as being out of place on paper, but once you see it in this film as a whole, it's so necessary. It's very humanizing for the for all three of the characters. Like, yeah, there's all, yeah. there's three people in this shitty situation, but all they can do is like laugh at this point. Yeah, it's like it's so. Obs- if like, you don't absurd. laugh, you'll cry, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a, a funny like sort of character difference, I guess. Uh, I think also it takes place like that night is when they're 
still working on the case after dinner. Mm. And then Mills goes to offer Somerset like a drink. And he's like, oh yeah, I'll have some wine, like red wine. And he pulls it, <laughs> he gets like this probably dirty, like tall glass and then just fills it to the brim with red wine. Yeah, like a highball filled yeah. with wine. That's <laughs> like, that's, that's even shows like the difference between those two characters. Like one is just, yeah. he's just going to have a beer or whatever's around. And the other mm. one tries to be somewhat sophisticated, but then is just served like some, yeah. some tall wine in whatever's laying around. You raise a good point because in that, sort of dinner sequence you've got somerset drinking wine as opposed to mills drinking beer somerset's in a very like smart uh kind of business attire where mills is in like these casual like lounge clothes um and even then when sort of mills wife and somerset are interacting like he's very uh polite and kind and then obviously it's mills house but he's like still laid back and swearing and it just shows um, just in one scene, like they're, they're polar opposites, yeah. having to work together to like solve a case. Yeah, I do like Mills' character, how it's played out in the movie though, because he is this like hot shot, like abrupt, like hot headed fucking guy. So mm. you, you kind of expect him to be annoying or bad or something. Yeah. But there's there's a couple of moments throughout the movie where like he gets home and then he immediately just starts rolling around with his dogs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's like he shows. And every time he's talking to his wife, he's, like, very sweet and caring. Mm. And so, it's like, he's not this one-sided character who's just the hotshot. Like, he's got, very like, multiple different sides of himself. Yeah. He has redeeming qualities that, uh, while he does go off, like, a loaded gun multiple times throughout <laughs> the, the film, you can't help but, like, relate to him in some ways. Or maybe not relate to him, but respect him. Yeah. Like, his passion for his work. Yeah. Um. What did you make of the whole metronome thing in the opening that Somerset uses to go to sleep? What did I make of it? Yeah. Did you uh, read into that at all? Because I, I thought it was there for a reason and <laughs> I only came to one conclusion, but I want to see yours first. Uh, okay. I've not thought about it until now. So let me see what my brain says. So metronomes are used to, I guess, meditate. Mm. So in my mind, he sets up the metronome so that he can focus on that instead of all the shit going on around him. Mm, and so like that's, that's his way of distracting his mind and sort of drowning out the shit around him. Yeah, okay. That's good. See, and, then, and then later in the movie, when he goes to do it and then he can't, mm. he grabs it and he throws it. And that's sort of, I guess, like the meaning of that would be it becomes so much that he can no longer drown it out. Yeah, like no, case, I like this, that. This case has like overtaken his mind so much that... Yeah, he can't meditate and just drown mm. it out anymore. That's an interesting point because even when his boss at the cop station like assigns him to the case, he's like asking to be changed to something else. Yeah, he's like, he wants, I don't like, want it. He wants to like ease out into retirement. He doesn't want to fucking crack a serial killer case before he hangs his hat up because um, when he works out that, uh, I think it's after the second death, that the killer is working with the seven deadly sins in mind, he's like, oh, you're going to have five more murders, so... <laughs> You know, here's some clues. Give it to Mills. Assign him the case. I yeah. want something different. Um, yes, yeah, so that's an interesting point because then after he smashes the metronome, he also ends up like throwing a switchblade at a dartboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so very restless, anxious man. But um, yeah, I probably read into it too much. I kind of got the vibe that like the metronome offers this kind of continuous soothing tick like an analog clock, but without the reminder of passing time. So then when he smashes it, it's like he has no deadline. Like, coming up, like, he's literally counting down the days to his retirement, mm -hmm. but now he can't because this sort of thing is just infinitely ongoing. This crime will always be around. 
even if he's not there to stop it or solve it. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. But he's definitely reading into it. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. I think when he does first try and reassign it to someone else, he even says, like, this case will just go on and on, and mm. he wants to leave in, like, seven days. Mm. But then later, I think, in the movie, once they get a bit more into solving it, I think he even tells Mills, like, I've decided to stay on until this is all done. Yeah. So yeah. That, that would work too, where he's no longer counting the other days. It's like, all right, well, I'll see this one out. Because they uncover a body a day. So the mm. fact that there's seven deadly sins and seven days in a week, it ties in quite well with him before he retires. And I think that's probably why they also had like the title cards of the days of the week, mm-hmm. which was which really, I forgot about, really but it's a, it's a good, in, uh, good uh, in- inclusion in the movie. And John Doe, you never know his name, of course. He, even though he turns himself in, he doesn't give any information about himself, yet still somehow gets a lawyer to speak for him. Well, everyone's entitled to a lawyer because he's a public defender. Yeah, I presume they need like personal information, though. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how American Legal criminal works. law worked in the 90s. Uh, and he's just such a fascinating character because he's so calm and, and eerily carries out these, these uh, sickening deeds. But... Um, also, he's just kind of interesting because he, for one, cuts his fingerprints off with a razor blade so yep. they can't track him. <laughs> um, that's pretty full on. But also, uh, like, when they break into his apartment and you see, like, shelves and shelves of, like, what does he say? Like, over 2,000 handwritten journals. Yeah. Of just, like, thought vomit. Yeah. Like, stream of consciousness stuff. Put up in no particular order. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which, and- I, I think... I've read that all of those were actually handwritten and created for the movie. Oh, my God. I believe. And it took something like, I want to say like $20,000 of the budget to, to like pay for and make them. Can you imagine doing that and then you only see like Somerset flick through <laughs> yeah. one book in the final cut? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, that's kind of like in The Shining. Yeah. When they type up the um, All Work and No Play Makes Jack and Doll Boys stuff. Sure. Uh, but yeah, and I also like kind of the... The intellectual side of it where like he's a smart man and he's he's like an educated man while he does have sort of delusions with like this biblical motive in a way um all these like handwritten notes that he leaves at the the murder scenes with like quotes in the bible or like paradise lost dante's uh, divine comedy things like that mm-hmm. like really interesting that like part of it appealed to me from like a, a literature perspective yeah i mean that's kind of the not really a I guess it could be a trope of like the best serial killers in movies are usually the super intellectual, very creative ones mm. uh, that have just gone a little bit crazy or have ideals that yeah don't really align with society's norms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where in reality most serial killers are pathetic, stupid, like mm. illiterate, mm. just losers. Yeah, that's like right. BTK, I'm looking at you. <laughs> so when it's like this, it makes it particularly interesting because it's like what snapped? Like, what went wrong with this person that was doing so well in well, their I mean, life? To you don't get any background, but it, I, I assumed he's just always been like this, mm. and then he's just decided to finally do something about it. Like, yeah. he just believes he was always meant to do it, and then it just took him a while to actually get there. And that's like when Somerset's trying to like press him in the car on their way to you know the um, desert highway spot, and he's like, "Oh, are you saying like?" your hand was forced by God. Do you consider this like the Lord's work? Stuff like that. Mm. And he like, he just wants him to like blame it on God, but he never like explicitly does. Cause he like, when he uses the lawyer to like blackmail them into thinking there's two more dead, 
he plays the card of like, if you don't do this, I'll just plead insanity and get off. Yeah, which realistically would probably wouldn't work. Yeah. I think the insanity plea is like a, it's either a 1% or a 0.1% success rate or something like that. Mm, mm. And you know what uh, also I forgot about the opening of this film is there's a dead body in the first minute. Mm-hmm. It's not like <laughs> one of his, I don't think. It's just, um, you know, Somerset rocking up to just a scene. another case, yeah. Where you first get introduced into Mills. But uh, yeah, I didn't think it was that fucking quick. Yeah, well, I forgot about that entire sequence to start with. Yeah. I thought it started... With them sort of, well, I guess similar, dead body. I thought it started with them sort of rocking up to the gluttony Oh, the gluttony death, kill. Which, yeah. Yeah, which would have made sense in my mind of like, all right, straight into the action of what this movie's about. But no, mm. it actually does set up some characters first. And that's a pretty grotesque opening as well because like the man is, he's been dead a little while, so he's starting to like decompose and be all grey and bloated and gross. But his like, hands and feet were bound and his face is like down in the bowl of spaghetti sauce. Yeah. Um, and I guess you got the cockroaches and shit, but the interesting thing about like medical gore, I think we mentioned this in the Saw episode, is it's like something about autopsies that give you the same kind of confronting shock of seeing a kill, but without the violence. So you get this really strange reaction when you see like an autopsy scene in films. At least I do. I think it also seems more real in a way like mm. if you just see a bit of gore or violence in a movie of someone getting killed it's like well yeah i'm watching a movie that's you know that's movie stuff yeah but then if it's in the context of an autopsy or they're laying on an autopsy table mm. and it's like well that, i mean that stuff happens every day there's autopsies yeah. going on all the time there's people being cut open and surgeries being done yeah so, like i think you can relate it a lot more to the real world even when they like hold up a bag with his stomach in it <laughs> like yeah. it's made me queasy just looking at that yeah uh, and what else you got? The next one is greed, right? And you've got the lawyer that kind of bleeds out in his office because he's like Saw 6 style. Yeah, he's I was like, going to say very Saw-esque. Like, yeah, or Saw 4, whichever one. Yeah, having to like cut open, well, cut cut a piece, a pound of flesh off yourself to live. Mm. He's given uh, a meat cleaver in one hand, but then like his other hand's cut off, right? Because they find it like in brine in a jar in his apartment later, I think. Yeah, must do, yeah. Yeah, pretty gnarly. No, I think that's Sloth's hand. Oh, okay, gotcha. Because that's where they get the fingerprints to find Sloth's apartment. Oh, yeah, because it's written like in it's like help me is written with his fingerprints by the painting. Yeah, Yeah. so I don't so I don't know what the with the with the lawyer was. The Sloth one is probably the gnarliest. Um, like you've because he was a drug dealer, wasn't he? And he gets like strapped to the bed, left to decompose over a year. And I don't, he, like, he, injects him? I don't know if he was a drug dealer. I think he was a child molester. Like oh, he, okay. He had like sexual assault charges of minors and stuff on him. Mm. Maybe he was mentally handicapped as well. Something yeah. Along those lines. Okay. Okay. And um, one of the most memorable things about that is all the like little tree car scents hanging yeah, from the ceiling. Car fresheners all hanging up, which. I don't think that would work. No, <laughs> they're, they're totally. not strong enough to hide the. Well, I guess he's not dead, but I mean, there's like a hundred of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've only ever smelled one. I don't know. Depends if is he like going in there every day and like peeling the plastic <laughs> a little bit more so you've got the slow release. How often do they have to? I mean, what if what if the the subplot of this movie is they have to like go to different stores and be like, right, who bought a hundred of these <laughs> little Christmas air, Christmas tree air fresheners? Yeah, that's how we find our killer. That's funny. Um, yeah. And uh, they say he, like, chewed his own tongue off and, mm-hmm. oh, he's, like, so emaciated and just, it's 
Gross. And I read that uh, that was filmed in like a dingy old apartment and they actually had to clear out like crack pipes and used condoms <laughs> and shit before they started filming. So even the set design of that film, they probably like used it as they found it. <laughs> yeah. And just added a, a few things. Um, yeah. And uh, they get like the address of John's apartment from paying that ex-FBI agent to track like library history, don't they? Yep. Of the book quotes they've been finding. Yep. Which I think like back in 1995, that was a very, uh, not sci-fi, but like that's, it was a conspiracy thing for sure. Like, oh, Mm. the government's keeping tabs on us without us knowing. But then I think that, isn't that what the Patriot Patriot Act is? Like Uh, in America, they can just do that now. Like they have access to everyone's library records. I think so. It's, it's kind of gray area (laughs) of like morality. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. um, I don't know where I sit on that. Like on my one hand, it's like, yeah, I don't really care if the government checks through stuff like that for me because I'm not doing anything wrong. But at the same time, the fact that they have access to it. So if they wanted to, they could, (laughs) <laughs> come to me and be like, hey, you were Googling how to slaughter seven people, you know? These two men in Brisbane, Australia have been researching the loved ones and seven. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> Wolf that, Creek. I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, that chase scene is quite impressive because it comes almost like exactly at the halfway point of this film. And being a crime thriller, it's kind of been a slow burn up until now. Yeah. But it's one of the real best. Bit of action. Yeah, and it's one of the best, I think, police chase scenes I've ever seen in a movie because, like, they're running through, like, individual apartments, jumping out windows, mm-hmm. like, going after each other in the rain, crossing, crossing the traffic by, like, running on roofs of cars. Like, sure. it's it's pretty cool. I'm not a big fan of chase sequences unless it's, like, Scream. So, <laughs> I well, don't know. I prefer them on footers to the old cop oh, car. Yeah, car chase. Car chase, oh, yeah. Baby Driver, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Baby Driver did it pretty darn well. And um, the the next one's Lust, isn't it? Because they yeah. find, like, the receipt of the sex shop in, like, in his, his apartment. apartment. Yeah. yeah, like you said, Sloth was probably the gnarliest one. I think in terms of what you see, sure. But in terms of the idea of it, Lust is, like, the most <sighs> fucked up one, for L- sure. Lust is definitely... It would definitely have to be the goriest. I think I just find Sloth... Gross. Uh, it's just I as guess. fucked up. It's so, so essentially, he gets this guy to create like a bladed strap on. Yep. Forces this guy to wear it and have sex with his prostitute. Yes. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's as far as we need to go into that, and it's a, a good thing they don't show it on or anything to do with it in. The yeah. Movie. Like the most you see is just a photo of the device mm. and. Like the the reactions of the people. Yeah, because they don't show the Half body. The you can just kind of see her like legs, but Mill's head is like in front of it. Yeah. And I read that that actress, um, she wasn't paid a whole heap for that day of filming, but she's like, being naked in front of Brad Pitt was enough of a perk. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that's when we we're talking about like that dude in the cop station afterwards, like just forever traumatized. Yeah, fucking hell. Like what, what a scene. And everything. I mean, after... to be fair, though, I don't. I would have been killed because I, even if there was a gun to my head, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, it's fucked. <laughs> the pride one was kind of. I don't want to say the least creative, but it was like <laughs> it was the least memorable. for sure. Yeah, yeah, because it because he does cut her nose off, right? 
Yeah, cuts her nose off. That was the consequence. To spite her face and to mm. just, yeah, just butchers her face. And then, what, super glues a phone in one hand and a bottle of pills in the other? Yeah, because the idea is she can either call 911 or call for help and in which case she would live but be horribly disfigured for the rest of her life. And mm-hmm. as a model, she mm-hmm. chose to take the pills and kill herself, but yes. he cut her nose off anyway. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, some social commentary enforced by the by gunpoint in yeah, that scene for sure but yeah then that's that's like the last of the actual like kills you properly like see the last, last of the, the murders he does yeah so the last two where you get particularly interesting because john kind of like orchestrates them to happen ahead of time but like we said earlier he pitches it like there are two more bodies to discover will you find them in time before some big reveal like mm. i've got this secret coming you're gonna love it kind of thing I also um, love how, sorry, before we skip ahead, yeah, I, I love how the whole movie has been this like chase, this cat and mouse stuff going on. Mm. And then like kind of out of the blue, the detectives walk into the cop shop and then behind them, he just walks in and announces like yells out like yeah. detectives, I think you're looking for me. Yeah. It's like throws such a wrench into the movie of like, all right, you, we, like we've set it up to be this cat and mouse thing. They're going to eventually mm. catch him. And then like, oh no, he's literally going to walk into the cop shop. And it's like, well, where the fuck's the movie going to go from here? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of the few films I've seen that does this. Like yeah. the killer turns himself in. And obviously because he thinks he's, you know, a mastermind and he's like untouchable because he's confident that he's planned everything in a way that like everything has a fail safe to work out according to plan. And uh, yeah, I, I think I read that... Um, what was the writer's name again? Andrew Kevin Walker. Um wanted that uh, sort of twist uh, at the start of the final act to set up for the audience not getting any closure and not getting, like, <laughs> the satisfaction of seeing him brought to justice because, like, on he's, like, caught on his own terms. Yeah. And even then, they he, never learn who he is. Yeah, because at the end, he gets what he wants. Mm. Mm. And I suppose we'll go into that as, uh, as grim as it is. Sure. So, the last two sins are Envy and Wrath, and... Uh, he often, because he says on the phone when they raid his apartment, he calls his own phone and says, like, I admire you, yeah, Detective Mills. So that kind of plants a seed early on. And he kind of says that a bit in the final act, like in the cop station or in the car. So essentially, they meet in this spot in this desert highway. And he's like, oh, what are we here for? You know, we're here at seven. What's happening? And he's like, oh, it's coming. It's soon. And then this delivery van just starts like, Fanging it down <laughs> this this dirt road, and uh, has a parcel for Detective Mills, and what's in the box, Nathan? <laughs> that is the most memeable movie quote I think, or most what's quoted in the box? bit, yeah, ever. It's yeah, his his wife's head in yeah. a box, which you don't see. I think a lot of people mistakenly think you do see it in the movie, but they don't actually show a shot of the head. See, this is what I meant before when we were talking about which cut we saw, because I think I remember seeing the head. No, that is. I'm pretty sure that's completely what do they call it? A mandala effect. It is they, really. They, I don't think they ever shot a, a sequel, like a, a fucking bit of the head in maybe, a box. Yeah, maybe I've just seen it parodied or something because I could have sworn that you see like her head in some like uncut director's version on DVD or something for like no. a second. No. I mean, maybe in, not. In season two or three of Prison Bake, you see someone's head in a box. Maybe Prison that's Bake? what you're thinking of. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Uh, the prison's greatest British bake-off <laughs> uh, coming to you. Uh, yeah, but you know, I'm I'm 90% certain 
there's no cuts where you see the head. Yeah, okay. That's funny. Yeah. It's, uh, I must have just, yeah, pieced it together myself. Especially because there is an alternate ending. I don't know if it was filmed or if it was just written, but there was an alternate ending where it's eventually revealed that it wasn't even like her head. He just oh. found someone who looked like her to sort of trick them in the moment. But I don't like that because that completely undercuts his whole thing about being envy. Mm, so mm. as a good thing, it's an alternate ending and not the actual ending. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And then obviously as a byproduct of that, you get wrath from Mills shooting John for revenge, which is such a gut punch because even though the killer dies, he still wins because Mills sure. is incarcerated instead of John. Yeah. But I mean, like he'll be fine. <laughs> he'll be right. It's uh. Oh, another thing that I forgot to mention earlier um, that I thought was a really nice twist before this big reveal was that when they're raiding his apartment, they find the photos in the bath where you learn that he was that photojournalist and like paid police to let him in to get photos of the crime scene. And then when Mills like attacks him and sends him on his way, that was the guy they were looking for. Yeah. The only... I have two things to say about that. One is the only thing I don't like is... Mills's reaction is like, we fucking had him and we let him go. It's like, well, there was no indication of you having him. He was mm. just a random photographer. So you shouldn't yeah. be that upset. But the bit I do like about that is it calls back to that moment later where in that sequence where they do like see the photographer mm. who turns out to be John Doe, uh, Somerset like says to Mills, yeah, uh, the reporters like pay police for information. Yeah. And then it's revealed later that that's exactly what John Doe did mm. is he pretended to be a reporter, paid someone on the police force to get information about Mills's wife. Yeah. And then that's how he found it. Because when he's like stirring Mills up in the cop car on the way to this this desert spot, he's like, oh, it's disturbing how easy it is to like pay for information in this city. That's not in the cop car. That's, that's later. Oh, is it? When he's talking. Oh, yeah. when he's like on his knees. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. At gunpoint. Yeah. It's... um. It's so well done, and like you said earlier, we've got like the SWAT team and the helicopter circling, um, you know, to make sure it doesn't pull any fast ones. But the acting from Brad Pitt in this scene is brilliant. Oh, like, yes. like career highlight acting because yeah. you can see on his face, like, just him flicking between, yeah. like, Conf- like do I do it? I'm not going to do it. Do yeah. I do it? Like, well, like confused, anguish, angry, yeah, like sickened, yeah, just looks at it like. Pulls the gun up and he's like, no, no, let me think about it a bit more. No, yeah. fuck him, I'll get it. Like, it's it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that he didn't know that his wife was pregnant, but Somerset did as well. Yeah. And that comes out and that's when he's like, okay, no, I've got to yeah, unload in his ass. <laughs> okay, well, phrasing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, yeah, it's intense. What, what a scene. And uh, I really love, nothing's like spoon-fed to the audience, like, I now know you don't see the head. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mills doesn't see the, the package. Uh, Somerset just opens the box, comes running over and says, give me a gun. Mm-hmm. So it's all just kind of pieced together. And that's why part of me doesn't really like that John straight up says, I had to take a souvenir, souvenir, her pretty little head. I was like, oh, did well, you? You got to have something there for the slow audience. Members. Yeah. Like but- it, 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 it does the best of both worlds. It gives enough clues and evidence in the lead up mm. so that some viewers can be like, I'm a smarty. I understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, but then for the little kids in the back eating glue, uh, they spoon feed <laughs> it to them and say, Hey, we killed her. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. But um, yeah, 
grim ending to the film. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that just kind of has um, Mills getting sat in the back of a cop car with this, like, voiceover narration from Somerset, and then you get uh, the credits, which i got to say, the credits of this film are my favourite I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. The opening uh, sequence, where you're seeing, like, how John is, Doe prepares yeah, that's good. everything. And then the fact that the closing credits are backwards... Mm-hmm. And they so like, scroll down. Yeah, as they go scroll down. Yeah, it's the first time like Kevin Spacey isn't credited at the beginning because oh. he wanted he didn't want people to know he was in the movie essentially. Interesting. Because so, if like if you see that Kevin Spacey's in the movie in the credits, but you haven't seen him, it's like well he's probably the killer because we yeah. haven't seen him yet. Whereas they wait till the last credits and then he's billed twice. Yeah. And then I think also to like top that as well, he didn't do any marketing for the movie. Like he didn't do any of the press tours or the junkets. Oh, cool. So people probably barely knew he was in the movie until they saw it. That's Especially smart. Especially in 1995 where there's not mm. really internet. Word travels like slow. And I love at the start, you've got that like remix of Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Just works so well for the theme of this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have something to put towards you. I want to I get your thoughts on this. Something I realized kind of thinking about this film afterwards was, in a way, Mills kind of commits all seven deadly sins. And it got me thinking as to why John would say he admires him or whether the whole point was to have him killed in the end. And he didn't actually admire him at all. You lost me there for a second. Do you say Mills did all the seven deadly sins? In a way. Tell me how. So How did he do lust? So he's... He's wrath embodied, sure. because that's how it comes he along. Is, yeah, he is the wrath kill. Sure. I feel like by the end of it, he almost envies Somerset in some ways. Like, he gains his respect and understands why he is the way that he is. Because they have that disagreement at the bar, but then after that, he kind of, like, starts to see things his way. Yeah, but I don't think he envies him, but continue on to the um, next one. Gluttony. Like, you see him eating, like, leftover pizza, <laughs> okay. and, like, whenever they're at a cafe, like, Somerset never orders anything, but Mills does. Okay, fair enough. Sloth, like when he goes over for dinner and Somerset's like all dressed up and polite and he's just like lounging around and like on the floor with dogs and then he's like swearing and stuff. Like, I don't, like it's very surface level stuff. Yes, I, I appreciate you looking into that, but I do not see it. Lust because he's about to have a baby. <laughs> pride because he's got an ego. Like, yeah, yeah. I could definitely see, I could see pride, I could see wrath. Yeah, like you got to look at it as all like surface level stuff. But how I just thought he, that was how, But how is he greed? <sighs> Maybe that's why he wanted to be transferred to this <laughs> city. <laughs> but I yeah, don't know. just something, anyway. just something I wondered. Yeah, no, that's fair. You know what? One of my favorite scenes in this film was that had nothing to do with the kills. Was the library scene. When Somerset's in there doing all his research on the book quotes. Oh, yeah. You've just got some beautiful imagery here where he's sort of pacing between the, the corridors of all the bookshelves and the close-ups of turning the page. It's almost like Edgar Wright-esque editing Interesting. in this part where it's all these extreme close-ups. Um, and this lovely classical music for this sort of drawn-out scene where there's very little dialogue while the guards are like playing, playing cards. Poker, yeah, yeah um, I just really enjoyed that from a technical perspective. Um, and another thing I want to give props to in this film is the makeup. Obviously, like the set design is sick. The fact that someone went to the painstaking effort of putting all those little tree casts and stuff in the ceiling, but <laughs> yep. um, and, and the you know the blood and everything, the the gluttony one. But uh, yeah, the makeup, like the the dead bodies and the whole sloth thing, the pride, like it's um really interesting to see 
how they could make a grotesque scene with, in some cases, like little to no gore. Mm-hmm. I thought yeah. that was quite unsettling. A lot of attention to detail in all the, the set design and practical effects. Yeah, yeah. Is there a shot in this film that you'd frame? No, I'm going to say no, because Ooh, nothing okay. stood out. Okay. However, there's an asterisk. I would just like the Polaroid of the of the <laughs> the lust kill, like the ah oh, yeah, the bladed strap on. You'll just get that thing built and put that on display well, on like hold, a mannequin. That's, that's a bit far. <laughs> I'm, I'd settle for the Polaroid. <laughs> You've got the Babadook book in the in the bookcase. You've got a mannequin in the corner with the <laughs> the lust knife strap on. The whole Seven Deadly Sin background and like the motive behind the killings and um, just gets you thinking about like. You know, if these sins were adhered to, pretty much everything is blasphemous. Like, everything yeah. we do in daylight would send um, us to hell. <laughs> that's religion. Not to yeah. shit on any religions. Apologies to any religious viewers, mm. listeners. Uh, but yeah, if you read the Bible, then yeah. everything is a fucking sin. Kind of makes you wonder, like, where do we draw the line in modern society? Yeah. Murder. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, a lot of people turn down roles or involvement with this film because of how dark... And evil it is, but that's kind of just life. Like, to a degree, evil is everywhere, always has been, and always will be. Well, that's depressing as shit, but yes, I agree. (laughs) This is not always, you know, something we can do anything about. You have to do what you can to balance it out. That's right. That's right. My question for you is what sin do you think you embody the most? Probably pride. Pride? (laughs) Prideful son of a bitch. Uh, Yeah, I mean,. Lately, gluttony. <laughs> You're the, lean, um, the the skinniest, leanest man I know. <laughs> Fuck you. What about you? Uh, first of all, I think you're lust because you're a sexy man. But Yes, a I, single man who's not been with anyone for many moons. Yeah, well, yeah, lust. That's, that's fine. But you, people still lust over you. You're just... <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm not the one lusting. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're creating lust. You Look at the way you're dressed uh, today. That's uh, funny. I'd be probably sloth, as bad as that is. <laughs> I am... Um, <laughs> What makes you say that? Because I'm a procrastinator by nature. If I get home after work and I sit down with a beer, mm. then I, I'm not likely to get back. <laughs> That's up. where you're staying until yeah, it's bedtime. I have like I have I very much have to actively go against my nature to do something and like mm. I have to choose not to sit down and I have to choose to do something instead. And then yeah. like I don't know, I just have a lot of this is get a bit sciencey, but I have a lot of inertia mm. in a way that I enjoy doing something while I, like while I'm doing it, and I don't like changing it. So if I'm if I'm in the mood and I'm cleaning, mm. I don't want to not stop cleaning. But if I'm not, then I don't want to start cleaning. Yeah, okay. if that makes any sense at all. You need to be put in motion. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like you're in space. Just you need to ricochet off something, yeah. and then and you I, won't stop. It's my opinion of reading like books as well. If I'm reading a book, I love it. I enjoy. It. I don't want to stop. But if I'm not reading a book, and then it's like do I really want to read a book? Like, it's just starting, it's the hardest thing. Yeah, it can be a laborious thing. Like, I recently read Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton, which i got to say is probably now one of my favourite novels after Frankenstein. I know. Um, and I've since picked up some of his other books at markets uh, around since I thoroughly enjoyed that one. And I'm currently reading one called Prey, where it goes into sort of like nanotechnology... <laughs> nanobots and this was like early 2000s and to see like where he predicted artificial intelligence would be and now seeing where it is at 20 years later is quite interesting but even like how in-depth he went into genetic engineering in the book of jurassic park was was quite fascinating 
But some of those books, like, you've got to be in the mood for it or else the <laughs> science of it is just going to go in one ear and out the other. Sure. Which is why I'm alternating between books like that and classic literature and fucking Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you just need e- easy reading. Yeah. 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 I mean, speaking of that, I, I told you this. So I picked up, I went to an op shop and picked up a over a hundred year old copy of like the sonnets of Shakespeare. Yeah. That's cool, man. I just tried, well, when, as soon as I got home, I wanted to show Alex and I read her a sonnet because I'm a romantic fuck i'm kidding of course serenaded her uh i struggled to read it man like <laughs> all the like if, if you just like for the first time ever read shakespeare like that you've never read before it's, mm. it's just that archaic way of speaking is oh yeah it gets you so tongue-tied and I, yeah. you sound so robotic because you when you're reading it you sort of read it in a way that you're used to words being said but yeah. then so the word you think is coming up is replaced by a different word that you don't know and it's so verbose like they wax poetic about something you could say in like three words. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. All that good stuff. Well, that probably brings our seven episode, which is in fact 33, to a close. Of course. And I also want to point out it's seven and It is. Yeah, Sven. It's spelt weirdly. S-E-7-E-N. But yes, that is it for this episode. Yeah. Uh, we drop every new episode at 5 p.m. on Fridays. You can catch us on social medias at Deadhouse and Deadhouse Pod. Email at deadhousepod at hotmail.com. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to add there. I thought of something and as soon as I opened my mouth, it was fucking gone. And on that note, we'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs>